This morning, uh, Lord willing, we're going to look at chapter 62 and 63, and I'm only going to read 62 at this time. This is uh, the very word of the transcendent God. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest, and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. Never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies, and never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Pass through, pass through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise a banner for the nations." The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your Savior comes. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. Before we start working through this section together, let's pray. Our King and our Father, we would ask this morning that you would, by your Spirit, uh, be faithful to the glory of your name, and that you would open your word to us. Uh, Lord, we, we pray that this morning you will not allow us to simply put in time uh, in sort of religious service, but this morning draw us to know you and to meet with you in a very personal way. Help us to, in meeting you and in the hearing of your word, help us to be transformed so that what you have to say to us actually alters our identity, actually moves us to be changed people. We, we recognize our need for change. Uh, we acknowledge uh, how far we do fall short of uh, the ideals that you have for us. 
And so we ask that you will forgive us for that, for our sin and our shortcomings. We also ask that you will strengthen us, uh, increase our capacity, uh, give, us, give us energy and balance in our stride to be able to walk with you through your Holy Spirit. Father, for those uh, who are away today, who are normally part of our, of our group here, uh, we just ask that you will be with them, that you will bless them, keep them safe as they travel. Uh, and even this morning, wherever they are, we pray that in a very special way, you will meet with them, make them consciously aware, whether they're, they're worshiping in another assembly or congregation or, or whether they're on the road or wherever they are at this moment. Just We ask that you will, by your Spirit, draw their hearts and their minds to you. And Father, we would also think this morning of those that we know and that we love uh, who who do not spare any time or thought for you, who, who do not have any desire to, to have a close relationship with you. Lord, we pray that even now you will, by your Spirit, just tap them on the shoulder, just, just speak into their heart, direct their thoughts to you, direct their thoughts to eternity. Lord, for those who know the gospel, who have decided not to put their faith in Jesus, we pray that you will compel them to do so. Show them their need of a Savior and show them the perfect sufficiency of Jesus. Lord, you are a Savior. We ask that you will save, and we ask that you will make us so mindful of the supernatural work that you do that you will receive great praise and glory, as we know it could only come from you. So it is returned to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in this text, you begin with the city that is uh, currently laboring in disgrace. And you've had your exile. We're, we're familiar with what's going on here in the context of the book of Isaiah. The city, through its own sin, has been ruined, it's been destroyed. But God is acting to purify it, and He's acting to restore it and redeem it. Of course, in this city, really, is symbolic of His people. It is literally Jerusalem, of course, but it's not that God is, is more concerned with bricks and mortar than he is with the people or the inhabitants or the citizens of the city itself. So, so in Scripture, when you're dealing with cities and lands and nations, it's, of course, it's the people. It's the people that are really near and dear to God's heart. They are the focus. I mean, God doesn't, uh, Christ doesn't shed his blood in the first instance you know, to, to redeem a, a, a physical structure. He, he dies to redeem people. Now, physical structures are purified through that in the end, restored through that in the end, but the reason they're restored is because of God's love for his people, for the citizens and the occupants of those places. But here God says that he is going to uh, continue to speak out until his people are vindicated. Until Jerusalem, which has been disgraced because it's been ruined through its sin, is restored and its vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. And so this is where you get that idea, really, you know, that Jesus will talk about, about you know, a, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And, and you don't take you know, the lamp and put it under a basket. Uh, here, Jerusalem, the people of God are shining out like a torch. They're shining out like this rising sun early in the morning, dispelling the darkness, so that all nations will see it. All nations will see what God has done. They'll see the vindication of his people, and all kings will see your glory. And so there's, there's a power here 
When God works to redeem and when God works to transform, when God vindicates his people, it is for his glory. It is certainly for their good. But there's always this sort of this mission function and emphasis as well, that, that God saves us, God redeems us, God blesses us for us, but also for others, so that nations will see the light, so that kings will see the glory, so that your neighbor will know that there is a Savior named Jesus. I mean, you, you're not just saved so that people who know you can say, oh my goodness, they're, they're living their best life now. You know, you're saved so that people can see there is a powerful being of grace behind you who loves you. And frankly, if he can love and redeem and save you, then he can love and redeem and save them or anyone else. In fact, one of the most important things when it comes to evangelism is, is, is to recognize that, as it's sometimes been said, you know, we are, we are nothing more than beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. Uh, that is, we are not coming to people with all of our sort of spiritual affluence, saying, oh, you, you want to be just like me. What we are doing is we are coming to people saying, my goodness, I know the person you need to meet. Uh, I, I know the person who has helped me. I know the person who has rescued me. There is a Savior for people like me, and for, since there's a Savior for people like me, there's a Savior for anyone. So let me show you who that is. So God allows us, he vindicates us, he allows our light to shine for his glory, for our good, but also for other people. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. Now this is fascinating. Uh, If I had more time, what I'd want to do is I'd want to sort of work through a biblical theology of naming. That is, how does naming function from Genesis through Revelation? Now, you'll recall, of course, that that Adam names the animals. You know, he, he identifies their nature. He gives them, it's not just sort of a phonetic title attached to them so that he knows what he calls them in his dictionary. He's actually, when he names them, he's identifying their nature or their essence, what they actually are. Now, God does the same thing. In fact, when God reveals his names to us, what he's doing is he's revealing his character and essence. He's not just giving us titles that he wants to be called by phonetically. So the names of God in Scripture are significant. They tell you who God is. You'll recall, of course, just one example, uh, it w- would be Jacob. Jacob literally means he grasps the heel. Remember, he's born clutching onto Esau's heel. Uh, that's what it literally means. Uh, or he trips someone up. Figuratively or metaphorically, it means a deceiver. He's a deceiver or, or, or a sneak. You know, he, he's a little rat. You know, he goes scurrying around, grabbing your heel and tripping you up. So that's his character. Now, if you actually read the text, if you can just get over the idea that if someone is a character in the Old Testament, they must have done everything right. And you can start reading the Old Testament narrative without them spoon-feeding you, oh, by the way, this is a patriarch, but what they're doing here is wicked. You know, if you can just recognize that that could be the case, it transforms your reading of, of the Old Testament characters. Jacob is not a hero of the faith. Jacob is exactly what his name is. He's a lying, sneaking rat. That's what he is. And all of the narrative events show that again and again and again and again. Part of the problem is a lot of our commentators and pastors have felt a need to to sanctify and sanitize everything that these people did instead of just letting the narrative speak for what it is. Jacob is a deceiving rat until 
he wrestles with God and is broken. And then God changes his name to Israel. He struggles with man. He struggles with God. He overcomes. And so this is significant because it's not just God saying, well, I'm tired of this title. Let's give you another label. It's God saying, your nature has changed. This encounter with me has fundamentally altered who you are. You are no longer the liar. You are no longer the sneak. You are now the one who wrestles with me. It's identity. In Revelation, one of the blessings for those who overcome is that they're given a new name only known between themselves and God. In other words, God very intimately speaks into your life and tells you, this is who you really are. No one else knows you the way I know you. I see your heart. I've created your essence. This is you. And it's a redemptive name. It's something that no one else can imagine. It's something only Christ himself knows. He knows you so perfectly and intimately. He gives you a name known only between himself and you. Here, the mouth of the Lord, if you've been working through Isaiah, if you've been here, you know when the mouth of the Lord speaks, it is an amazing thing. This new name is given to you by the mouth of the Lord, full of authority, full of power. And what is it? Well, you're not told just now. You can probably worry about it and puzzle it out a little bit, but you're told in the next couple of verses in terms of theme. Moving on, tabling that, remembering it, but moving on, you will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And so the imagery here is God on his throne, the mighty God, the Holy One of Israel, the one that Isaiah sees in Isaiah 6, the train of his robe fills the temple arrayed in glory and power and splendor. And what's his crown? It's you. What's his royal scepter? It's his redeemed people. You are the royal insignia of God himself, redeemed from disgrace to be his crown, his sign of royal authority the scepter in his hand. No longer, and this is where we begin to get back to the name change, no longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah. Hephzibah means my delight is in her. And so if you were to write this as an English name, you'd probably want to put hyphens in, my delight is in her. That's the name, that's the identity of this person in God's sight. Your land will be called Beulah, and Beulah means married. Uh, So what God is saying is, here are your names. You who used to be known through through the moniker of being desolate and deserted, abandoned, you are now the one in whom my delight is in. My delight is in her. That's your name. That's your identity. That's your fundamental essence is the one in whom God delights. And your land is married. Your land is not deserted. Your land is blessed and taken care of. Why? For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. 
As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Your name is Hephzibah. That's who you are. God delights in you. Do you know that? God. God looks at these lives and he says, no, 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 no. The, the world has written a narrative script and other people have named you. But I'm changing your name permanently. My mouth will bestow on you your identity. Your identity is that my delight is in you. You are married to me. I am your builder. I am the one who has created you. I am the one who has designed you. I am the one, I am the one who has called you into existence out of nothing. I am the one who sustains you. I am the one, before I said, let there be light, I saw you and wanted you and created you and brought you into time-space reality so you would have actual ontological existence and you will be mine. And all of this, all of this world history is running to you. Not a lot more than you. But it's running to you. The only reason you exist is because God wants you to. Have you ever, have you ever thought about that? Uh, we're all, all, none of us are necessary beings. All of our existence is contingent. We're, we, all, we are all capable of not existing. And, and the reason we know that, of course, is that none of us existed, you know, 150 years ago. Except possibly Sam. Yeah. <laughs> There's a time we didn't exist. God brings us into existence. We don't have to exist. So then why do we? This is, this is a great fundamental philosophical question. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there existence? Why do things exist? Why do you exist? Out of all the people, out of all the genetic combinations, out of all the accidental contingencies in history, why you? Because before God said, let there be light, God already knew who you were in his mind and said, I want to create that person. And I will delight in that person. I will create them and build them. And then I will marry them. And I, God, speaking first person, I will rejoice in them. That seems impossible. It makes sense for us to rejoice in God. But God says he rejoices in us. God. 
God. And, and, and I don't want to sort of beat the proverbial dead horse, but do you know who God is? <laughs> like, like, do you know who you are? Does this not seem asymmetrical? Does this not seem slightly unbalanced? That God rejoices in us. That seems, that's the sort of thing you would think, it's so preposterous you wouldn't put it in the Bible as it was true. Who would come up with that? It just shatters all of the categories. And in a book like Isaiah, in a book like Isaiah, for goodness sakes, where so much of it is on the transcendence of God. It's not like Isaiah has this low view of God where he's like us, but just a little bit more souped up. This is, this is a God who defies all the categories. This is a God who is holy, holy, holy. This is the God. There is no one like him. Isaiah does not have a low view of God. He's just like our buddy. Isaiah sees God, and his first response to seeing God is, I'm dead. And is this person saying, oh, God delights in us, he rejoices in us, he, he creates us to marry us. Now, the marriage is obviously a metaphor. Now, you, you move with this through Christ and the church, of course, most famously. Christ is the bridegroom of his bride, the church. Where the point of contact in Paul's metaphor, or analogy in Ephesians 5, rather, is that Christ loved us enough to die for us. Do you realize, again, it, all these things we just know, that we, just, we just assume in terms of Christian theology, the Son of God delights in a people so much, but they're so rebellious and wicked that the only way he can have a relationship with them is if he literally dies and sheds his blood to provide a, an atoning sacrifice in their place. And so he does. He dies for us so that we can belong to him. Like, that's how much he loves us. Like, us. Are you kidding? But he does. And you'll never find a reason if you're looking inside of you as to why God would do that. You can only ever find a reason when you look into the heart of God where you'll be lost in wonder, love, and praise. And it will always be unfathomable to you. It will never make rational sense to you except that that's just the kind of being God is. God is love. And it's not really credit to us that God loves us. It's not really a reflection on us. It's a reflection on him that God can love so deeply, he even loves people like us. Earthly marriage is temporary. Love is forever. The relationship we have with God is forever because it's grounded in love. Now, with that, with God delighting in his people and rejoicing in his people and loving his people so much, What does he do? He guards them. He protects them. He loves them too much for them to be harmed. So he says, I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. I'm going to make sure. I'm going to take care of this. I'm I'm going to put knights around you. I'm going to make sure you are protected. 
I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. That is, they will alert you. They will let you know. They will help you. You, you who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest. He establishes Jerusalem and makes for the praise of the earth. Now, this is something I'm going to gloss very quickly. It would be well worth spending time on terms of reflection about what prayer is like. You who call on the Lord, don't rest and don't give him rest. You keep calling out to God. You know he's not sleepy, but you engage with him. You don't just sort of say, well, God, you know, here, here's my prayer list. I'm going to pray these things once and move on with my life. You, you engage with God. You wrestle with God like Israel did. Give yourselves no rest. Give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Now, what has the Lord done? The Lord has sworn by his right hand. That is, God swears by himself. God enters into an oath here on the basis of his own power. Never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies, etc., etc. The idea here is that those covenant curses in Deuteronomy, they will never be implemented again. That is, I will use my power to bless you, to help you, not to harm you. Your harvest will lead you to praise the Lord, verse 9. The grapes, uh, you gather grapes, will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. These will be used for offerings. Praise and offering. That's why God blesses us. God blesses us so that we will praise Him. It, 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 is, a, it is a shocking scandal that in the church... We, we only celebrate Thanksgiving once a year. Uh, Thanksgiving should be something that is the orientation of our lives because every blessing God gives to us is oriented to cause us to praise Him. Verse 10, he's removing all of the obstacles. He's making this proclamation at the ends of the earth to daughter Zion. Your Savior is coming. Just hold on. He's on his way. Your Savior comes, his reward is with him, his recompense accompanies him. God, this is something that's just utterly staggering. I don't know about your life, but, but God actually rewards his people. He, he blesses them in grace. Not only does he come to save them, he, he, just, he just piles blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon their heads. His recompense accompanies him. And then you literally call these four things. The holy people. It's the people reserved entirely for God, separate, cut apart, called out, holy, in W-H starting, holy reserved for God, entirely reserved for God would have been a better word choice, talking about holiness, entirely reserved for God, the holy people. Why are they a holy people? Because they've been redeemed by the Lord. That is, he has bought them to belong to himself. He has purchased them out of sin and slavery and shame to be reserved entirely for him. So they are redeemed to be his holy people, redeemed of the Lord to be a holy people. You will be called sought after. That is, those who are rejected are now pursued. They don't have to hope that someone's going to come looking for them. Someone is coming for them. They, are, they, don't, need to, they don't need to go seeking themselves, or they don't need to go looking for other people. People are pursuing them. They are sought after. The city no longer deserted. The holy people, redeemed of the Lord, sought after, no longer deserted. In other words, what God has done is God has entirely changed your identity. I will give you a new name. You get to the end of this chapter, and he has. He has totally changed the identity of his people. 
Now, how does he do that? Who is this coming from Edom, from Bosra with his garments stained crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. So now you look. This figure comes towards you out of the horizon. As you begin to get your focus on them, you see that their robes are mighty, or their robes are, are majestic and splendor, but stained bright red. The voice says, I am victorious. I am the one who is mighty to save. Why are your garments red? Like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. That's tough. That's tough. Why are your garments stained like one triding? down the grapes in a wine press. Well, because that's just what I did with the people. The people were grapes, and I broke them under my feet until their blood spattered up on my robes. This is horrifying and graphic and exceeded by language in Revelation. In this world, because it is a cursed world, we celebrate the great days of victory and liberation In, for example, World War II, we celebrate the liberation of Holland. We celebrate the, the liberation of France. We, we celebrate those few who were still alive at the end of the concentration camp era who were allowed to go free. Such a small percentage of all those who had been interred in those camps throughout those years, but there was still some at the end. And we celebrate the victory, but at what cost was that victory? Sometimes in this world, liberation only comes when the blood of enemies is shed. And for all of the celebration of victory, 
there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands who were just, who had their physical lives ended through bullets and bombs in horrific ways. When the Savior comes and redeems his people, when he liberates them, it's analogous to the Second World War. Oh, there's great rejoicing for those who are liberated. But those who they are liberated from die in violence and bloodshed. And if there was any way possible at all that I could be faithful to what this text says and entirely avoid that theme, I would. Because psychologically and emotionally, I'm not well designed to deal with things like this. But to protect his people, God will destroy those who persist in attacking them. And God calls them. He calls even the enemies to repent, to stop fighting. In fact, all through Scripture, there's, there's often, there, there are pleas to people, just come to God. Lay down your arms. You will be destroyed. There's a clear warning here. Stop fighting. But if you would just come to peace with God, this won't have to happen. But people persist. And to protect his redeemed people will die. You're supposed to feel the jolting juxtaposition of the next verse. I will tell of the kindness of the Lord. The deeds for which he is to be praised. According to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel according to his compassion and many kindnesses. The word here is chesed. That is the the great love of God. You're supposed to feel that. You're supposed to to come out. Again, I'm so so tired of, of, of reading the Bible in like one chapter devotional installments where we just fly through it to, to check the box and say we read it. So we, don't, we don't even think about it. You, you are not supposed to read the first six verses of this chapter and hit verse seven and be okay. This is supposed to, this, is, this just is like, it's like going 100 miles an hour down the road and hitting a brick wall. It stops you. You're just looking at, at this one who's trampling the nations, grinding them down. Their, their blood is spattering all over his clothes, and that's how he saves his people. And now you just shift. Let's talk about the kindness of God. Let's talk about all the good things he does. Let's talk about his love. How does that work? Well, how does it work? Well, in some ways, you have to see that the two, the two are two sides of the same coin. Well, what has he done? He said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence said, what he's doing now is he's giving you a historical overview. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy. And he himself fought against them. So he 
redemption out of Egypt and how the people rebelled. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who sent his Holy Spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in open country, they did not stumble, like cattle that go down to the plain. They were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people to make for yourself a glorious name. And so, so what Isaiah's doing, he's thinking, wait, let's look historically. God redeemed the people out of Egypt, gave them Moses, brought them through the Red Sea, brought them into the desert. He, he, he blessed them again and again and again and again. And what did they do? They rebelled again and again and again and again. And, and so God brought about the, he brings about the exile. But he continues to guide them. He wants to guide his people to make a glorious name for himself. Look down from heaven and see. This is in the calling to God. From your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. But you are our father. Though Abraham doesn't know us or Israel acknowledges us, you, Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. So what they're doing is they're saying, look, God, yes, we have been rebellious, but you are a God who is working through us to make your name glorious. Where are you? Where's your mercy and compassion? You fought against us. You've chastised us, but we need help. Look down from heaven and see us. And, and you know, the, the father language is not to be equated with sort of the New Testament richness of that language, which we get with Jesus. The idea here is, is, is not that God's your Abba. The idea is that God is your progenitor. That is, you, you track yourself back to Israel, or you track yourself back to Abraham, even if they disown you, God is your creator. God is your father. God is your source or your origin. You're our father and redeemer. Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? That is worth thinking about at tremendous length. Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Why does God do that? Or does he? That is, is this explaining what God does, or is this just faithfully recording the complaint of the people and their perception of what God is doing in them? Which one is it? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. For a little while your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We are yours from of old, but you have not ruled over them. They have not been called by your name. Now, what you have here is everything is broken down. Everything is ruined. And the people, sincerely, question mark, are begging God to do something for them. They're begging God to return. Now, if we had more time, we'd just go into the next chapter where these things get resolved. 
but that will have to wait for two weeks from now because I'm away next Sunday. You'll have to think about it on your own. How do these things all come together? Well, partly I'll just give you the first verse. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. God, you've done this in the past. You can do it again today. God, we are absolutely dependent on you. Act. We are not capable of doing this ourselves. We can't salvage this ourselves. We can't build this up on our own. God, unless you come down to us, there's no hope at all. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, touch the mountains so that they smoke. That's Sinai imagery. That's theophany. That's God's revelation of himself on Sinai. Take us back to Sinai. Take us back to yourself. Restore and renew the covenant. The catastrophe and brokenness of this age, the darkness here in this text, the blood shedding and all of the rest, the grotesqueness, the horror, is the backdrop for the glory that is speeding your way in the creation of the new heavens and new earth, which is just a chapter and a half in the future. You don't read a book of literature and spend all this time working through it and stop when there's three pages left. The Bible is literature. It's not supposed to be divided up into these chapters. And so you, you hit this and you just keep moving really, really, really soon. Five, six, seven minutes of reading later, you're into the new heavens and new earth. But you get there partly through here. It's partly the reality. The black backdrop of night and sin and brokenness and shame is what allows the glory of the vindication of God's people to shine so brightly. And in that sense, then you, start, you, you hit here, and you also spiral back to the beginning of 62, which is, arise! Your light will shine out like the dawn. Like a torch, like a lamp, you're vindicated. You've been given a new name. Your builder delights in you. Your builder marries you. Your God rejoices in you. All of those things are still true. And now you're being given a perspective. As you cycle back here in verses 7 through 19, you're going back historically. So in a sense, this section, is, as a historical review, moves you before chapter 62, chronologically, in terms of chronological sequence. This is a flashback. So who is the one that God is marrying? Who is the one that God delights in? Who is the one that God loves and redeems and vindicates? It's these rebellious people. There's no one else. It's not Jerusalem the good. It's Jerusalem the rebellious. It's not because they're so morally pure. They're, they're, they're utterly wicked. It's not because they're begging to walk with the Spirit and bruising the fruit of the Spirit. They're grieving the Spirit. It's these people God delights in. This is something we need to understand. Jesus has never saved anyone who wasn't a damned sinner. Jesus only saves sinners. Jesus only loves sinners. 
Because there is no other type of person in this world. God only redeems the broken because there's no one other type of person in this world. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. Oh, may God help us. Begin to see more clearly what our new name is in His sight. How great that transformation is. And may He help us to praise and adore and love and worship Him. We have a small opportunity to do that now uh, by responding in song. And so I'm asking our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song at this time.